Hi, I'm Morvan Westfield, and you're listening to Vampires, Witches, and Geeks, a podcast about vampires, modern witches, and geeky stuff. This is episode 35, Beyond Twilight, the Infinite Variety of Vampire Fiction, with Anana Arthen. Because of the length, I've divided Anana's presentation into three parts. This is part two. By the last third of the 19th century, the fiction of the day was like very social issue oriented. It was romances. A lot of women were just reading romance fiction and, and by, by, the, by the drove. Uh, science fiction, Jules Verne. Um, a lot of people were starting to come up with, with um, uh, stories that played on the modern outlook and industrialization. That's really what was interesting to people. And culture was changing very rapidly in the second half of the 19th century, and writers were, were uh, reacting to that. Mystery, uh, Sherlock Holmes, for example, was immensely popular, ra- being rational. Um, so vampires were kind of treated sort of as a parody, you know, as humorously, you know, they appeared in, in, in shows and, and you'd make a joke out of them and so forth, uh, which is often when, there's, when, a, when parodies and satires and humorous ways of looking at a theme become predominant, you usually know the theme is like on its downslide. And you're always going to have some satire. But when it becomes really a big deal, you know that things are kind of like going down. Um, but vampires, when they did appear in stories, they were usually treated, uh, they were usually explained rationally. And an example would be the Sherlock Holmes story, The Sussex Vampire, where the man says, you know, I think my wife might be a vampire because I caught her sucking our baby's blood. <laughs> you know, it turned out that there was... Um, the wife was from South America, and someone was trying to assassinate them with poison darts. And she, you know, she had found a dart in the baby and was sucking the poison out. Mm. And she couldn't tell her husband that. So that sort of thing you find in stories of the time. There's the rational explanations. So, in 1897, we got the 500-pound gorilla. Dracula changed everything. And I want to explain why that is, because it wasn't just the publication of the book. And it's going to go back to what we said about the sex. You know, and the idea people have that, you know, at some point in history, vampire fiction was all about horrible monsters and it was never about sex. And that, you know, again, we've already seen that before Dracula, that wasn't true. The opposite was true. But he created this new standard, which everyone started to imitate and still does the original edition of the book. It was not a popular book. It uh, was not sell well. The reviews were mixed. Some people found he kind of mixed that. Remember what we just said about the um, fiction taking the very modernist point of view? And Dracula, everyone is very modern and very modern, uh, you know, progressive, forward-thinking women uh, with Mina and, uh, you know, everyone, she's the typewriter and, the, you know, Dr. Steward records his diary. He can't even write it. He records it on a on a on a uh, phonograph, and everyone knows the timetables. Even Dracula knows the timetables. You know, when, when Jonathan Harker goes down to Romania, Dracula has been studying Western culture for years and years and perfecting his accent. He knows the trains. He knows all the modern technology, and he wants to just fit into this world. So even Dracula is modern, and it's only looking back now that it appears archaic to us. You know, Dracula was written as vampire in the modern world becoming modern. That's what Stoker was writing. But many of the reviewers found this forced. And they said, you know, you're taking this, this antiquated, which by then it was considered to be very musty and archaic. The vampire was, was, on, was out. 
and you're taking this very antiquated supernatural idea and you're trying to marry it to this modern type of fiction and it just doesn't work and you know you're kind of making the vampire banal and you know they were bored by it. Mm -hmm. But he invented and this is a what close close approximation, very close approximation to Stoker's actual description of, of, of Dracula in the early part of the book. Then he gets younger. When he comes to London and he gets lots of blood, you know, he, he becomes much younger and, and has black hair, but this is this is a, a very accurate representation of how he's described. Um, <clears throat> some of the things that uh, uh, Stoker, he did some research, but he actually invented a lot of these conventions, which now people look at and they think, well, this is folklore, this is myth, or this is, you know, what, you know, something that he researched. Uh, garlic. Garlic and crosses as specific to vampires. In the cultures, again, those cultures where, uh, where the vampire myth originated, garlic and similar anti-evil devices were used for everything. They were not just vampire specific, they were like generalized anti-evil uh, uh, things that you would do that were uh, for demons, that were for the, you know, the fairies, for any kind of supernatural creature and vampires just happened to be some of what they, you know, and you saw some of that used in some of those flaps and that's where people got the idea, but it, they were never vampire specific until after Stoker. Um, having to be invited inside, and this is actually, there's a video clip, but I'm afraid we've run out of time, but there's actually a little clip of this scene. This is a scene from the 19, 2011 remake of Fright Night, and it's not in the first movie, but Jerry Dandridge has come to Charlie's kitchen door, and he can't come in, and he's standing very casually in the threshold, and he's baiting Charlie. He's trying to get Charlie to let him in, to, to ask him in, and the scene is very cleverly done. It's very cleverly done, but you can see how he just come on, you know, come on, just say it, say it, you know, be nice, invite me in, and there's this whole, and it goes on for several minutes, and he doesn't, you know, Charlie's on to him, so he doesn't get in, but that was invented by Stoker, because think about it, why would you need all these things over your doors and windows and chimney to keep the vampires out if they couldn't come in unless they were invited? <laughs> I mean, they darn well what they wanted, you know, and it was, you, most of that stuff didn't work, they came in anyway, but, but Stoker came up with that not having a reflection. Um, there was a belief that if a corpse was reflected, that it would not rest easy in its grave, that it might the soul might be captured in the reflection, and that so in, in areas where the vampire belief was really strong, um, but there's always been a, they would cover the mirrors in the house where there was a corpse, or you know, a dead body. And the minute someone died, this, the minute they died, you'd immediately cover all the mirrors. So there was no chance of the, of the body being reflected. Um, but there was never a question that it would have a reflection. It was just that you didn't, you didn't want that to happen. So uh, I know I had a friend of mine who edited a magazine asked me, you know, can you find the, the history, like the root of why people felt vampires had no reflection? And I looked and looked and looked and looked. I couldn't find it anywhere before Stoker. Mm. Uh, so he came up with that. The word undead, he invented the word undead. Originally it was the subtitle of his, or it was the title of his novel, was the undead before he titled it Dracula. Nosferatu is not a real word. No one knows where Stoker got that. It's not a Romanian word. It's not, you know, it's nonsense. We think he misunderstood something he heard somewhere. It's still haven't tracked that down. Okay, so Dracula comes out and not much happens. 
you know, it sold lackadaisical sales. Stoker, you know, did other, wrote other books. During, up through the 1920s, the word vampire or vamp meant a sexually predatory woman, and that's all. So uh, there's a lot of now lost silent films with vampire in their titles, and as far as we can tell, they had nothing to do with anything supernatural. They were about you know homewreckers. They were about <laughs> you know, women who were um, you know sluts and uh, you know destroyed men by, by through sexuality. Theda Barrow was this is Theda Barrow. She was actually called the vampire, but she never actually played a bloodsucker, and that was true right up until the 1920s. In Germany, F. W. Murnau made an unauthorized movie version of Dracula called Nosferatu. Stoker's widow sued him. All had, most of the prints were destroyed, and the film was really not discovered until like the 1970s. They finally discovered it and put it back together. And, and, uh, so it really was not as influential to the genre as sometimes it's given credit for, but it is the first fictional work ever, ever, in which vampires are harmed by sunlight at all. Before that, Dracula walks around in the sunlight, Carmilla walks around in the sunlight. And so the whole idea of, and it evolved from, 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 from just dissolving in sunlight to this incendiary sunlight to this sunlight as a bomb. You know, the <laughs> vampires eventually blow up <laughs> and take, every, take things out around them. <laughs> so the, the, whole, the whole concept, of, but now, I mean, I, it's not in my books and I'm seeing other writers kind of drop that but I see people complain about that particularly sometimes and say, you know, traditional vampires burn in sunlight. Well, no, it is a fictional convention that was adopted not so much in 1922, but, but we'll get to where it really took off. Um, but it, it was not part of folklore and it was not part of early fiction. Um, but it has a very, very powerful psychological element, the whole idea that sunlight being purifying, because what happened is religion became less of a less plausible to people as evil fighting, and so people went back to the old elemental methods of fighting evil, and the idea that if this is a creature of darkness, then sunlight is going to be bad for it, that sort of thing. Um, but this whole scene where he fades was, you know, the, the, the cameraman, I understand the cameraman actually suggested that they use that, that rather than, than, than stake um, uh, the vampire, and uh, he has been tricked. He is again. He's in love with the. He's in love with the female heroine, and he's been tricked to stay with her all night, and forget that the sun was going to rise, and he gets trapped by the rising sun. She doesn't ever draw her curtain, so, you know, he's he's toast. <laughs> um, and he just. And of course, in the, the scene, it's done quite well. And he dissolves in. But okay, so 1927. Hamilton Dean, uh, who was. Um, very close. Stoker was uh, his uh, theater manager. Hamilton Dean adapted Dracula for the stage in England, and it became a huge cult hit on the stage. Now he played the part on the stage. When it moved into 1927, mm -hmm. there's the playbill. Bella Lugosi took over the role in uh, in New York when it opened in the 20s. Now. Here's where I want to say something really significant about Lugosi, because this is another thing where people talk about traditional vampires and vampires being monsters, and people talk about Lugosi's vampire as being this evil, ugly, monstrous creature that, you know, that w was never considered to be sexy, and that women were never supposed to be attracted to, and he was just this evil guy. Dracula made Lugosi a matinee idol. 
in the styles of that time, he was considered very, very sexual. This is what he looked like as a young guy. Uh-huh. Which is not too far below. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his accent, his clothing, and his wealth made him exotic and desirable. And the way the play was written, he was threatened. He was a threat to the men because the women were attracted to him, and he wanted the women. So it's really important to realize that Dracula, as a stage production, this made Lugosi's career because he was so sexy. Now this is. Rudolph Valentino, who, as everyone knows, is like the ma great matinee idol of the 20s. And you see how closely similar they are in appearance. Mm -hmm. And Valentino played the Sheik. And the Sheik was this very kind of vampiric sort of character, exotic, dark-skinned. He's a ravisher. Uh, you know, uh, it, Valentino's Italian, but, uh, you know. And so, and so you saw that, like, the Sheik, I mean, women were swooning in the aisles. And that mm -hmm. happened with the stage production of Dracula. I mean, women were going nuts over this, this play. And this is what made Dracula an icon, was when it started to be dramatized. And Lugosi was seen as this, this sex god in the role, in the part. So there he is, like, creeping into people's bedrooms. <laughs> and he's doing, you know, and he's very stylized. But you have to look past the styles of the period and realize what people were seeing. I mean, they were seeing sex just rolling off this guy. And that's how he was playing the part. And yeah, he was he was monstrous in the, but you didn't you don't see him doing a lot of monstrous things in those early movies. He's basically kind of creeping around with this hidden agenda. Uh, and you had you know his women are not that sexy, but boy, do they look hungry. You know? <laughs> and, and, and so that was so what you get, you know, this is the scene where they're creeping up on Jonathan Harker, and and you know so you get this sense that they just they just want to own him body and soul and just devour him. But they're not dressed in, in sexy clothes. And we had Mark of the Vampire, and you see the same, the woman and all the, like, the nightgown, the long robes, and, and there's Lugosi playing, um, you know, a different vampire. But Lugosi got older as he played these parts, but initially, initially, what kicked off the Dracula craze was the tr tremendous sexual attraction of the character. And popular media really picked up on that. So in the 1930s, I didn't get a date for this, but it's mm. in the 30s. This is a Smirnoff vodka ad with a recipe for vampire gimlets, you know, which <laughs> three ounces of vodka is, uh, Smirnoff leaves you breathless, boy, I'll say. Because <laughs> people will be swinging these things all evening. But, um, but yeah, it's like this is, a, this is an ad that was picked up on the vampire trope. And obviously... When something like this appears in an ad, it's kind of like when it's used as a metaphor. It tells you that there is a critical mass behind it where they expect their audience to respond in a certain way. And they know their audience is going to have a certain familiarity with the image and understand it. So going up into the 20s and 30s and, 30s and 40s, what happened is that fantasies after 1939, which was the big blowout year where you had uh, Wizard of Oz and all of that is that fantasy kind of went on a downswing, partly because of the war, and partly because of social changes that were happening in the culture. You had John Carradine started to take over the Dracula part, and most of his films he played several films that were just sort of jokey, and you had like the, Lord, the Abbott and Costello movies with you know that made a big joke out of it all. This actually though was the first time when. Vampirism was presented as a kind of disease that could be medically cured by science. 
and of course it's a mad scientist and he goes wacko and everything but you see that's a nurse that he's <laughs> that he's with and so he is after the the side the doctor's nurse but he initially comes um, that's House of Dracula, and there was House of Frankenstein, was a very similar film. But he initially comes to the doctor to see if he can be cured. The doctor says, oh yeah, there's something weird in your blood, so let's see if we can do that. There was, you're just starting to see Vampire is Alien coming up. This is 1933, a story called Chamblow by C.L. Moore, who was a woman writer and wrote for the Pulps. And this character is, is set on the planet um, Venus, I think, Mars set on the planet Mars and the protagonist of the story is a kind of a, a Han Solo kind of character um, but he meets this young woman who's being chased by this crowd of people trying to lynch her and mm -hmm. takes her in and they all act really disgusted that he would have anything to do with her he doesn't understand what's going on it turns out that she's what's called a chamblow where she's wearing this red turban and she takes the turban off and all these wormy snakes come down out of her mm -hmm. head and they just can wrap themselves around their victim, and she feeds on his life force that way. But for the victim, it's this ecstatic experience. It's almost this, like you're having continuous orgasm. And so the people who take in the Chamblow become addicted to them. And that's why the crowd was so revolted with him. It's like he was saying, you know, he jerked off in public. You know, <laughs> he want this thing and admit it. Because it was this, this very perverse sexual thrill that you got out of letting the Chamblow feed on your life energy. And that story is considered, really has not been picked up. People have not imitated that story. It's sort of sui generis. But that's one of the most famous, you know, early stories that took a really different twist on the theme. So we get into the 1950s, and by the 1950s, we're in a very dry spell for vampires. There's not a lot of movies. They're seen as these like tired cliches. Uh, fiction and movies are really interested in science, um, and you know the economy was kind of coming up, and people were scared of bugs. <laughs> um, so you had a lot of these kind of things, which were uh, like the very, very uh, hyperbolic fears about the consequences of technology and especially nuclear science that was coming up at that time and, you know, and, uh, mutations from atom bombs and so forth. I mean, there, there were a bunch of giant bug movies, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> and people were scared of nuclear war. They were, you know, they were, they were interested in and scared of scientific advances. Um, but you started to see alien movies that picked up on it as an undertone with the whole sort of themes that had been through vampire fiction all along. And you had Klaatu coming down, and look at Michael Rennie, wouldn't he be a great vampire? Mm. I mean, you cast him as Dracula in a second. And he comes in and he's, he's an alien, uh, he's a stranger, he kind of walks in, he has a fake name, he inculcates himself into, the, into this little household, he's living in a boarding house. Not only is that kind of feed on the communist fears of that time, but it also was very much what some of the old vampire folklore was about, where you had a stranger come to town and you weren't sure what this person was all about. And if anything started to go wrong, that's who you pointed the finger at, because you didn't know this person. And also, Klaatu, he's very benign, but he brings a death threat. It's like, the, the, the end of the movie, it's like, you guys don't shape up, you're going to be, you know, we're going to wipe you out. Uh, so he's tremendously powerful, and that power is being held, you know, over you. And that also was something you saw in vampire themes. So you saw these themes happening. Also, 
One thing that happens when vampires are at low ebb, and we're going to get to the next time that that happened in the 70s, is you start to see people step outside the box. Because people no longer feel that they have to jump on the bandwagon, or that, that there, are, there are expected conventions they have to follow. And so when vampire fiction gets to be its low points, you often get some of your really innovative or unusual kinds of things coming up. So in 1959, you had, this is actually one of my absolute favorite vampire movies, called Curse of the Undead, very rare, serious, because there have been some spoof ones, serious vampire western mashup. And the interesting thing about it is that it was played absolutely straight. And this actor, Michael Pate, played the vampire with a level of sensuality that you see very seldom, because you kind of like, Lugosi was very stylized in the way he acted. And this man, Michael Pate, he just was extremely sensuous and physical in the way he played the part. And he plays, the character is, um, he had been a Spanish nobleman and in the West, you know, when, when the territory still belonged to Spain, had committed suicide, came back as a vampire, and since then he's been roaming around as a gunslinger because guess what? He can't get shot. So he always wins. <laughs> and then he, you know, then there's the whole plot with, the, with this woman owns a ranch and, and there's, a, there's a big bully who's actually, you know, causing her serious harm and she's trying to stand up to the bully and the sheriff won't help her and the gunslinger comes in and says, you know, let me stay in your, you know, in your outbuilding and I'll you know, I'll take care of things for you. And so, and so you get that sort of um, diabolical sort of thing going on there. But uh, it's really, it's a well-done movie, you know, low budget, but just very unusual take on the theme, and it's just totally cliche-free. And so I would highly recommend it if, if you get a chance to see it. And in 1954, Richard Matheson published I Am Legend, which he proposed that vampirism had always been caused by a bacteria, which is then mutated by nuclear test radiation, <laughs> infects the entire human population, and the book's hero is working on finding a cure or a vaccine for the bacteria. Um, this was actually, 1964 was actually the most accurate and faithful to the book of all, there's been several film adaptations, most of them, the other two, like, went way off into left field, but this <laughs> one actually is very close, because the whole point is that what he finds out at the end of the book, it, can I give spoilers or not? <laughs> yeah. What I mean, if, if you don't want spoilers, I will not give them. So do you know? It could be a long time before any of us sees it anyway. Well, <laughs> but the book. I mean, you yeah, may have a copy have of the book yeah. of I Am Legend, but because it's been reissued several times too. I mean, the cover I showed you was a new cover. Yeah. Um, what he finds out at the end is that he's been going around killing all these vampires. The vampires have learned how to live with their disease mm -hmm. and are reforming society. And they see him as the monster that is killing all their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And obviously big miscommunication there, but they finally catch him and are going to execute him as being the horror that has been terrorizing them all these years. And that's what the title of the book is. His final thoughts are, I had become the monster. I am their legend. I am legend. Mm -hmm. you know, and now they will be free of that and they're going to rebuild their society. 1958, Hammer Films <laughs> revives the vampire genre with its series of films. And the first one was Horror of Dracula, 
which has that title in the U.S. because Universal Pictures copyrighted the title Dracula and wouldn't let them use it. Basically, it was just the, the, the book Dracula. Uh, introduce a very virile Christopher Lee as Dracula, but it introduces two images, and this is where these became instant, instant vampire canon, and you really didn't see them consistently before this. <clears throat> One is fangs. All of a sudden, vampires had to have fangs. And they were sometimes described as having pointy teeth or maybe having one pointy teeth or whatever, but it was never handled very consistently. After Horror of Dracula, everyone had the teeth prosthetics, and then, of course, you had to explain why sometimes they weren't there because actors couldn't really talk with the teeth prosthetics, and so we got the, the extending fangs that came down like a rattlesnake's teeth so that you could explain why, you know, the vampire could sometimes bite and the rest of the time he could talk. <laughs> um, but th that was started with 1958. The fangs had not been used, you know, again, at Nosferatu, he had the little rat's teeth in front, but most people hadn't seen Nosferatu at, in the 1950s. The other thing, and this was the other video clip I kind of wanted to run, but, but um, I don't know if we have time, and I have to go look it up now, but because there's a clip of this scene on YouTube. But at the end of Horror of Dracula, totally diverging from the book, Dracula is destroyed because Van Helsing rips the curtain down from the window and he gets caught in the sunlight and there's a very long special effects sequence where he very slowly dissolves, you know, burns all up and crumples and crinkles and burns into dust. Well, because this film had far more viewership than the previous film, this is where the whole sunlight thing really became canon because it was, it was a visual. It wasn't described in prose. And so it is powerful special effect, and I mean, uh, psychological effect, and also films. You think a book that sells a million copies is a runaway bestseller, a movie that only a million people see is a total flop. There's a complete qualitative di quantitative difference in the audience base for movies. So vampire fiction, once movies really got established, the tropes and trends would move from the movie into the fiction in most cases. So. The Hammer Films series continued and was really on a roll up until the late 60s, but they just got, you know, sillier and sillier, and they always had, they always had to destroy Dracula at the end, which meant every new movie had to figure out some way to bring him back, and those, those would end up taking half the movie, just bringing him back, and then, you know, Lee would have, like, six lines, you know, for the whole film, and they just finally kind of petered out, they just, you know, um, it's a, actually a, uh, from a, oh, Dracula A.D. 1972, which is widely considered the silliest of, <laughs> of, the, of the Hammer films that came out. 1967, Dark Shadows introduces Barnabas Collins as a last gasp effort to improve bad ratings. <laughs> Intended to be a 12-week closed storyline, basically retelling Dracula, uh, where Barnabas is, um, appears and uh, gloms onto what he thinks is a reincarnation of his lost love and so forth. Uh, Jonathan Frid was a Shakespearean, like mostly stage actor, didn't expect to be playing a vampire forever, and he just signed a 12-week contract, and he figured he'd be done. Public went crazy. The public went insane over Barnabas. Ratings went through the roof. They could not stop. They could not stop doing the, the show. Uh, they went back to kind of the old Universal movies where they're just throwing in every, they did every horror movie trope, every <laughs> horror fiction trope you can imagine. They did myths, they did, you know, they did Picture of Dorian Gray, they did Poe, uh, The Pit and the Pendulum, they just, you just name Werewolf. it. Probably was, 
the werewolf, um, you know, disembodied hand. I mean, just everything you can think of, they just threw into the mix, even if it was just briefly. But Dark Shadows is to blame, if you want to look at it that way, for several themes which became very, very common and also tended to be introduced into adaptations of Dracula after that. You had the strange thing being released from a coffin or a grave or a mausoleum or whatever where somebody is like messing around and, and opens something they shouldn't and all of a sudden something comes out uh, and walks away and creates havoc. And, and so you had, that was the scene where Willie Loomis, who is looking for the lost family jewels, you know, does this chain coffin, figuring that why else would you chain a coffin? There's something valuable in there, you know, and finally finds out why else. Um, and you had the, the vampire looking for the reincarnation of his lost love, which has been repeated uh, Tons of times, you know, where the, the person looks just like the, in fact, even in, in the original Fright Night, you know, where the, where, where the girlfriend looks just like someone that Jerry had known. Um, you just see that constantly. That became very, very common. And also you saw the whole idea that vampire can be cured by science. So here's, you know, she's wearing, she's got a hypodermic needle that she would give Barnabas <laughs> injections and cure him, and then he, he would, well, he kept getting zapped again by people, and then, he, and then they, they'd have to do it all over again. That was used in I Am Legend and House of Dracula, but it became much more common after Dark Shadows because they, they did it repeatedly. They just, you know, and, and did different permutations on, on, on the idea. But interestingly enough, the first two, the thing being released from a grave and the reincarnation of the lost love, that actually comes from the 1930 movie The Mummy. Because the, the Mummy, the very first Mummy movie, was different from all successive ones in that the Mummy did not remain all wrapped in bandages, shambling around. And, and, you know, Boris Karloff starts out that way, and the next time you see him, he's this very weather-beaten-looking, piercing-eyed fellow who otherwise looks fairly normal, hmm. who is very sinisterly going around and, and you know, he's pursuing this agenda. Uh, and his tongue hadn't been ripped out, so he could talk. Hmm. So. He has glommed on to this woman that he is the reincarnation of this princess. He believes is the reincarnation of this princess that he had loved, you know, thousands of years earlier. And uh, actually, the, if you've never seen the original Mummy, it's fascinating if you're a pagan, because she she saves the day. She saves herself by praying to Isis, and the goddess Isis stops the the you know um, the, the mummy from. Um, well, from doing what he was going to do to her, mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and sort of puts him back in his grave. But that, that's fascinating to me because so many horror movies have this very Christian slant, uh, which is sort of an undertone to the, the entire story where, where um, you, you know, Judeo-Christian values against the powers of evil and, and you know, everything is a demon. Um, and this was, you know, the heroine praying to the goddess Isis in order to be saved, and it works. Isis answers her. The contents of this presentation are copyright 2013 and Nana Arthen. The recording of this episode is copyright 2013 Morgan Westfield, but it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. See www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com for details. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening.